1. Roundabout rambles in lands of fact and fancy by Frank R. Stockton Winter in the Woods What can be more delightful, to a boy of spirit, than a day in the woods when there has been a good snow, if he also happens to have a good friend or two, and some good dogs who are just as likely to be friends as his boy companions, he ought to be much happier than an ordinary kid. A forest is a fine place at any time, but when the ground is well covered with snow especially if there is a hard crust upon it the woods seem to possess a peculiar charm. You can go anywhere then, in the summer, the thick undergrowth, the intertwining vines, and the heavy lower branches of the trees, make it difficult even to see into the dark recesses of the forest, but in the winter all is open, the low wet places, the deep holes, the rotten bogs, everything on the ground that is in the way of a good run and a jump is covered up. You do not walk a hundred yards under the bare branches of the trees before up starts a rabbit, or a hare, if you would rather call him by his right name, and away go the dogs, and away you go all of you tearing along at the top of your speed, but poor Bunny has a small chance, when a hard snow is on the ground, his hiding places are all covered up, and before he knows it the dogs have caught him, and your mother will have stewed rabbit for supper, it seems a hard fate for the poor little fellow. But he was born partly for that purpose. When you have caught your rabbit, and come back to where the men are cutting wood, you will be just as proud to tell the boy who is cutting up the branches all about your splendid hunt, as if you had chased and killed a stag. There's where we started him, you will cry. And away he scudded, over there among the chestnuts, and Rover right at his heels. And when we got down there to the creek, Rover turned heels overhead on the ice. He was going so fast. But I gave one slide right across, and just up there, by the big walnut, the other two dogs got him. That boy is almost as much excited as you are, and he would drop his axe in one minute, and be off with you on another chase, if his father were not there. And now you find that you have reached the woodcutters exactly in time, for that great tree is just about to come down. There go the top branches, moving slowly along through the tops of the other trees, and now they move faster and everything begins to crack, and, with a rush and a clatter of breaking limbs, the great oak comes crashing down, jarring the very earth beneath your feet, and making the snow fly about like a sparkling cloud, while away run the dogs, with their tails between their legs, the tree is down now, and you will want to be home in time for dinner, Farmer Brown's sled has just passed, and if you will cut across the woods you can catch up with him, and had a ride home, and tell him all about the rabbit hunt, on the way, if it is Saturday, and a holiday, you will be out again this afternoon, with some of the other boys, perhaps, and have a grand hunt, suppose it is snowing, what will you care, you will not mind the snow any more than if it were a shower of blossoms from the apple trees in May, tricks of light, there is nothing more straightforward in its ways than light when we let it alone, but, like many of us, when it is introduced to the inventions and contrivances of the civilized world, it often becomes exceedingly fond of vagaries and extravagances, of all the companions of light which endeavor to induce it to forsake its former simple habits. There is not one which has the influence possessed by glass. When light and glass get together it is difficult to divine what tricks they are going to perform, but some of these are very interesting, if they are a little wild, and there are very few of us who do not enjoy them. For instance, what a delight to any company, be it composed of young folks or old is a magic lantern, the most beautiful and the most absurd pictures may be made to appear upon the wall or screen, but there is an instrument, called the phantasmagoria, 
which is really nothing but an improved magic lantern, which is capable of producing much more striking effects. It is a much larger instrument than the other, and when it is exhibited a screen is placed between it and the spectators, so that they do not see how the pictures are produced. It is mounted on casters, so that at times it can be brought nearer and nearer to the screen, until the picture seems to enlarge and grow in a wonderful manner. Then, when it is drawn back, the image diminishes and recedes far into the distance. The lenses and other mechanism of the phantasmagoria can also be moved in various directions, making the action of the picture still more wonderful. Sometimes, when the instrument is exhibited in public, the screen is not used, but the pictures are thrown upon a cloud of smoke, which is itself almost invisible in the dim light of the room. In such a case the figures seem as if they were floating in the air. A man, named Robertson, once gave exhibitions in Paris, in an old chapel, and at the close of his performances he generally caused a great skeleton figure of death to appear among the pillars and arches. Many of the audience were often nearly scared to death by this apparition. The more ignorant people of Paris who attended these exhibitions, could not be persuaded, when they saw men, women, and animals walking about in the air between the arches of the chapel, that Robertson was not a magician, although he explained to them that the images were nothing but the effect of a lantern and some glass lenses, when these people could see that the figures were produced on a volume of smoke, they were still more astonished and awed, for they thought that the spirits arose from the fire which caused the smoke, but Robertson had still other means of exhibiting the tricks of light. Opposite is a picture of the dance of demons. This delusion is very simple indeed, and is produced by placing a card figure on a screen, and throwing shadows from this upon another screen, by means of several lights, held by assistants. Thus each light throws its own shadow, and if the candles are moved up and down, and about, the shadows will dance, jump over each other, and do all sorts of wonderful things. Robertson, and other public exhibitors, had quite complicated arrangements of this kind, but they all acted on the same principle, but all of those who exhibit to the public the freaks of light are not as honest as Mr. Robertson, you may have heard of Nostradamus, who also lived in Paris, but long before Robertson, and who pretended to be a magician, among other things, he asserted that he could show people pictures of their future husbands or wives, Marie de Medicis, a celebrated princess of the time, came to him on this sensible errand, and he, being very anxious to please her, showed her, in a looking glass, the reflected image of Henry of Navarre, sitting upon the throne of France. This, of course, astonished the princess very much, but it need not astonish us, if we carefully examine the picture of that conjuring scene. The mirror into which the lady was to look, was in a room adjoining that in which Henry was sitting on the throne. It was placed at such an angle that her face would not be reflected in it but an aperture in the wall allowed the figure of Henry to be reflected from a looking glass, hung near the ceiling, down upon the magic mirror. So, of course, she saw his picture there, and believed entirely in the old humbug, Nostradamus. But there are much simpler methods by which the vagaries of light may be made amusing, and among the best of these are what are called Chinese shadows. These require a little ingenuity, but they are certainly simple enough. They consist of nothing but the card or paper upon which the lights of the picture intended to be represented are cut out. When this is held between a candle and a wall, a startling shadow image may be produced, which one would not imagine to have any connection with the card, unless he had studied the manner in which said card was cut. Here is a picture of a company amusing themselves with these cards, 
No one would suppose that the card which the young man is holding in his hand bore the least resemblance to a lion's head, but there is no mistaking the shadow on the wall. The most wonderful public exhibitions of optical illusions have been those in which a real ghost or specter apparently moves across the stage of a theater. This has frequently been done in late years, both in this country and Europe. The audiences were perfectly amazed to see a spirit suddenly appear, walk about the stage, and act like a regular ghost, who did not seem to be in the least disturbed when an actor fired a pistol at him, or ran him through with a sword. The method of producing this illusion is well shown in the accompanying picture. A large plate of glass is placed in front of the stage so that the audience does not perceive it. The edges of it must be concealed by curtains, which are not shown in the picture. An actor, dressed as a ghost, walks in front of the stage below its level, where he is not seen by the audience, and a strong electric light being thrown upon him. His reflected image appears to the spectator as if it were walking about on the stage. When the light is put out of course the spirit instantly vanishes. A very amusing account is given of a man who was hired to do some work about a theater. He had finished his work for the present, and wishing to eat his supper, which he had brought with him, he chose a nice quiet place under the stage, where he thought he would not be disturbed, not knowing that everything was prepared for the appearance of a ghost. He sat down in front of the electric lamp, and as soon as it was lighted the audience was amazed to see, sitting very comfortably in the air above the stage a man in his shirt sleeves, eating bread and cheese, little did he think, when he heard the audience roaring with laughter, that they were laughing at his ghost, light plays so many tricks with our eyes and senses that it is possible to narrate but a few of them here, but those that I have mentioned are enough to show us what a wild fellow the island especially where he and glass get frolicking together, saving the toll, when I was a youngster and lived in the country, There were three of us boys who used to go very frequently to a small village about a mile from our homes. To reach this village it was necessary to cross a narrow river, and there was a toll bridge for that purpose. The toll for every foot passenger who went over this bridge was one cent. Now, this does not seem like a very high charge, but, at that time, we very often thought that we would much rather keep our pennies to spend in the village than to pay them to the old man who took toll on the bridge but it was often necessary for us to cross the river, and to do so, and save our money at the same time. We used to adopt a very hazardous expedient, at a short distance below the toll bridge there was a railroad bridge, which you cannot see in the picture. This bridge was not intended for anything but railroad trains, it was very high above the water, it was very long, and it was not floored. When anyone stood on the cross ties which supported the rails, he could look right down into the water far below him. For the convenience of the railroad men and others who sometimes were obliged to go on the bridge, there was a single line of boards placed over the ties at one side of the track, and there was a slight handrail put up at that side of the bridge. To save our pennies we used to cross this bridge, and every time we did so we risked our lives. We were careful, however, not to go on the bridge at times when a train might be expected to cross it, for when the cars pass aid us, we had much rather be on solid ground. But one day, when we had forgotten the hour, or a train was behind, or ahead of time, or an extra train was on the road we were crossing this railroad bridge, and had just about reached the middle of it, when we heard the whistle of a locomotive, looking up quickly, we saw a train, not a quarter of a mile away, which was coming towards us at full speed, we stood paralyzed for a moment, we did not know what to do, in a minute, or less, the train would be on the bridge and we had not 
or thought we had not, time to get off of it, whether we went forward or backward, but we could not stand on that narrow path of boards while the train was passing, the cars would almost touch us, what could we do, I believe that if we had had time, we would have climbed down on the trestle work below the bridge, and so let the train pass over us, but whatever could be done must be done instantly, and we could think of nothing better than to get outside of the railing and hold on as well as we could, in this position we would, at any rate, be far enough from the cars to prevent them from touching us, so out we got, and stood on the ends of the timbers, holding fast to the slender handrail, and on came the train, when the locomotive first touched the bridge we could feel the shock, and as it came rattling and grinding over the rails towards us coming right onto us, as it seemed our faces turned pale, you may well believe, but the locomotive did not run off the track just at that exact spot where we were standing a catastrophe which, I believe, in the bottom of our hearts, every one of us feared, it passed on, and the train came thundering after it, how dreadfully close those cars did come to us, how that bridge did shake and tremble in every timber, and how we trembled for fear we should be shaken off into the river so far below us, and what an enormously long train it was, I suppose that it took, really, but a very short time to pass, but it seemed to us as if there was no end to it at all, and as if it would never, never get entirely over that bridge, but it did cross at last, and went rumbling away into the distance, then we three, almost too much frightened to speak to each other, crept under the rail and hurried over the bridge, all that anxiety, that fright, that actual misery of mind, and positive danger of body, to save one cent apiece, but we never saved any more money in that way, when we crossed the river after that, we went over the toll bridge, and we paid our pennies, like other sensible people, had it been positively necessary for us to have crossed that river, and had there been no other way for us to do it but to go over the railroad bridge, I think we might have been called brave boys, for the bridge was very high above the water, and a timid person would have been very likely to have been frightened when he looked down at his feet, and saw how easy it would be for him to make a misstep and go tumbling down between the timbers, but, as there was no necessity or sufficient reason for our risking our lives in that manner, we were nothing more or less than three little fools, it would be well if all boys or girls, to whom a hazardous feat presents itself, would ask themselves the question, would it be a brave thing for me to do that, or would I be nearly proving myself a simpleton, the real king of beasts, for many centuries there has been a usurper on the throne of the beasts, that creature is the lion, but those who take an interest in the animal kingdom and I am very sorry for those who do not should force the lion to take off the crown, put down the scepter, and surrender the throne to the real king of beasts the elephant, there is every reason why this high honor should be accorded to the elephant, in the first place, he is physically superior to the lion, an elephant attacked by a lion could dash his antagonist to the ground with his trunk, run him through with his tusks, and trample him to death under his feet, the claws and teeth of the lion would make no impression of any consequence on the elephant's thick skin and massive muscles, if the elephant was to decide his claim to the throne by dint of fighting for it, the lion would find himself an ex-king in a very short time, but the elephant is too peaceful to assert his right in this way and, what is more, he does not suppose that anyone could even imagine a lion to be his superior, he never had such an idea himself, but besides his strength of body, the elephant is superior in intelligence to all animals, except the dog and man, he is said by naturalists to have a very fine brain, considering that he is only a beast, 
his instinct seems to arise on some occasions almost to the level of our practical reasoning, and the stories which are told of his smartness are very many indeed, but no one can assert that the lion has any particular intelligence, to be sure, there have been stories told of his generosity, but they are not many, and they are all very old, the elephant proves his preeminence as a thinking beast every day, we see him very frequently in menageries, and we can judge of what he is capable, we see the lion also, and we very soon find out what he can do, he can lie still and look grave and majestic, he can jump about in his cage, if he has been trained, and he can eat, he is certainly great in that respect, we all know a great deal about the elephant, how he is caught and tamed, and made the servant and sometimes the friend of man, this, however, seldom happens but in India, in Africa they do not often tame elephants, as they hunt them generally for the sake of their ivory, and the poor beasts are killed by hundreds and hundreds so that we may have billiard balls, knife handles, and fine tooth combs, right whether the elephant is wanted as a beast of burden, or it is only his great tusks that are desired, it is no joke to hunt him, he will not attack a man without provocation except in very rare cases, when he does get in a passion it is time for the hunter to look out for his precious skin, if the man is armed with a gun, he must take the best of aim, and his bullets must be like young cannon balls, for the elephant's head is hard and his skin is tough, if the hunter is on a horse, he need not suppose that he can escape by merely putting his steed to its best speed, the elephant is big and awkward looking, but he gets over the ground in a very rapid manner, here is an illustration of an incident in which a boy found out, in great sorrow and trepidation, how fast an elephant can run, this boy was one of the attendants of the Duke of Edinburgh, one of Queen Victoria's sons, who was hunting elephants in Africa, the elephants which the party were after on that particular day had got out of the sight of the hunters, and this boy, being mounted on a horse, went to look them up, it was not long before he found them, and he also found much more than he had bargained for, he found that one of the big fellows was very much inclined to hunt him and he came riding out of the forest as hard as he could go, with a great elephant full tilt after him, fortunately for the boy, the duke was ready with his gun, and when the elephant came dashing up he put two balls into his head, the great beast dropped mortally wounded, and the boy was saved, I don't believe that he was so curious about the whereabouts of elephants after that, when the elephant is desired as a servant, he is captured in various ways, sometimes he is driven into great pens, sometimes he tumbles into pitfalls, and sometimes tame elephants coax him into traps, and fondle and amuse him while their masters tie up his legs with strong ropes. The pitfalls are not favorite methods of capturing elephants. Besides the injury that may be done to the animal, other beasts may fall into and disturb the trap, and even men may find themselves at the bottom of a great deep hole when they least expect it, for the top is very carefully covered over with sticks and leaves, so as to look as much as possible like the surrounding ground. Duchelu, who was a great hunter in Africa, once fell down one of these pits, and it was a long time before he could make anybody hear him and come and help him out. If an elephant had happened to put his foot on the covering of that hole while Duchelu was down there, the hunter would have found himself very much crowded. When the elephant is caught, he is soon tamed and trained, and then he goes to a work to make himself full, if there is anything for him to do and it is when he becomes the servant and companion of man that we have an opportunity of seeing what a smart fellow he is, it is sometimes hard to believe all that we hear of the elephant's cleverness and sagacity, but we know that most of the stories we hear about him are true, for instance, 
An elephant which was on exhibition in this country had a fast and true friend, a little dog. One day, when these animals were temporarily residing in a barn, while on their march from one town to another, the elephant heard some men teasing the dog. Just outside of the barn, the rough fellows made the poor little dog howl and yelp, as they persecuted him by all sorts of mean tricks and ill usage. When the elephant heard the cries of his friend he became very much worried, and when at last he comprehended that the dog was being badly treated, he lifted up his trunk and just smashed a great hole in the side of the barn, making the stones and boards fly before him. When the men saw this great head sticking out through the side of the barn, and that great long trunk brandishing itself above their heads, they thought it was time to leave that little dog alone. Here, again, is an elephant story which is almost as tough as the animal's hide, but we have no right to disbelieve it, for it is told by very respectable writers. During the war between the East Indian natives and the English, in 1858, there was an elephant named Kudabarmal II, his mother having been a noted elephant named Kudabarmal. This animal belonged to the British Army, and his duty was to carry a cannon on his back. In this way he became very familiar with artillery. During a battle, when his cannon was posted on a battery, and was blazing away at the enemy, the good Kudabar was standing, according to custom, a few paces in the rear of the gunners, but the fire became very hot on that battery, and very soon most of the gunners were shot down, so that there was no one to pass the cartridges from the ammunition wagon to the artillerymen. Perceiving this, Kudabar, without being ordered, took the cartridges from the wagon, and passed them, one by one, to the gunner, very soon, however, there were only three men left, and these, just as they had loaded their cannon for another volley, fell killed or wounded, almost at the same moment, one of them, who held a lighted match in his hand, called as he fell to the elephant and handed him the match, the intelligent Kudabar took the match in his trunk, stepped up to the cannon, and fired it off. He was then about to apply the match to others, when reinforcements came up, and his services as an artillery man were no longer required. I cannot help thinking, that if that elephant had been furnished with a pen and ink, he might possibly have written a very good account of the battle, but few stories are quite as wonderful as that one. We have no difficulty at all in believing the account of the elephant who took care of a little child. He did not wear a cap and apron as the artist has shown in the picture, but he certainly was a very kind and attentive nurse. When the child fell down, the elephant would put his trunk gently around it, and pick it up. When it got tangled among thorns or vines, the great nurse would disengage it as carefully as anyone could have done it, and when it wandered too far, the elephant would bring it back and make it play within proper limits. I do not know what would have been the consequence if this child had behaved badly and the elephant had thought fit to give it a box on the ear, but nothing of the kind ever happened, and the child was a great deal safer than it would have been with many ordinary nurses. There are so many stories told about the elephant that I can allude to but few, even if I did not believe that you were familiar with a great many of them. One of the most humane and thoughtful elephants of whom I had ever heard was one which was attached, like our friend Kudabar, to an artillery train in India. He was walking, on a march, behind a wagon, when he perceived a soldier slip down in the road and fall exactly where, in another instant, the hind wheel of the wagon would pass over him, without being ordered, the elephant seized the wheel with his trunk, lifted it wagon and all in the air, and held it up until it had passed over the fallen soldier, neither you nor I could have done better than that, even if we had been strong enough, 
A very pretty story is told of an Indian elephant who was very gallant. His master, a young Burman lord, had recently been married, and, shortly after the wedding, he and his bride, with many of their guests and followers, were gathered together in the veranda, on the outside of his house. The elephant, who was a great favorite with the young lord, happened to be conducted past the house as the company were thus enjoying themselves, feeling, no doubt, that it was right to be as polite as possible on this occasion. He put his trunk over a bamboo fence which enclosed a garden, and selecting the biggest and brightest flower he could see, he approached the veranda, and rearing himself upon his hind legs, he stretched out his trunk, with the flower held delicately in the little finger at its end, towards the company. One of the women reached out her hand for it, but the elephant would not give it to her. Then his master wished to take it, but the elephant would not let him have it. But when the newly made bride came forward the elephant presented it to her with all the grace of which he was capable. Now, do you not think that an animal which is larger and more powerful than any beast which walks the earth, and island at the same time, gentle enough to nurse a child, humane enough to protect a dog or a man, and sensible enough to be polite to a newly married lady, is deserving of the title of the king of beasts. The French soldier boy anxiously the general-in-chief of the French army stood upon a little mound overlooking the battlefield, the cannon were thundering, the musketry was rattling, and clouds of smoke obscured the field and the contending armies. Ah, thought he, if that town over yonder is not taken, if my brave captains fall, and my brave soldiers falter at that stone wall, and if our flag shall not soon wave over those ramparts, France may yet be humbled, is it, then, a wonder, feeling that so much depended on the result of this battle, that his eyes strove so earnestly to pierce the heavy clouds of smoke that overhung the scene, but while he stood, there came towards him, galloping madly out of the battle, a solitary rider, in a few minutes he had reached the general, and thrown himself from his saddle, it was a mere boy one of the very youngest of soldiers, sire, he cried, we've taken the town, our men are in the marketplace, and you can ride there now, and see, upon the walls our flag, the eyes of the general flashed with joy and triumph, here was glorious news, as he turned to the boy to thank him for the more than welcome tidings that he brought, he noticed that the lad was pale and trembling, and that as he stood holding by the mane of his horse, his left hand was pressed upon his chest, and the blood was slowly trickling between his fingers, my boy, said he, tenderly, as he fixed his eyes upon the stripling, you're wounded, Mumber sire, cried the boy, his pale face flushing as his general thus addressed him, and the shouts of victory filled his ears, I am not wounded, I am killed, and down at his general's feet he fell and died, there have been brave men upon the battlefield ever since the world began, but there never was a truer soldier's heart than that which kept this boy alive until he had borne to his general the glorious news of the battle won, a lively way to ring a bell. Here are two young men who look very much as if they were trying to break their necks, but in reality they had no such desire. They are simply ringing that great bell, and riding backward and forward on it as it swings through the air. These young fellows are Spaniards, and in many churches in their country it is considered a fine thing to go up into the belfry of a church or cathedral, and, when the regular bell ringers are tired, to jump on the great bells and swing away as hard as they can make them go no matter about any particular peal or style of ringing, the faster and the more furiously they swing, the jollier the ride, and the greater the racket, sometimes in a cathedral there are twenty bells, all going at once, with a couple of mad chaps riding on each one of them, 
It I'll doubtless, a very pleasant amusement, after one gets used to it, but it is a wonder that some of those young men are not shot off into the air, when the great bell gets to swinging as fast and as far as it can go, but although they hold on as tightly as if they were riding a wild young colt, they are simply foolhardy, no man or boy has a right to risk his life and limbs in such reckless feats. there is no probability, however, of the sport ever being introduced into this country, even if there were no danger in it, such a clatter and banging as is heard in a Spanish belfry, when the young men are swinging on the bells, would never be allowed in our churches, the Spaniards may like such a noise and hubbub, but they like a great many things which would not suit us, down in the earth, let us take a little trip down under the surface of the earth, there will be something unusual about such an excursion, of course, as we are not going to dig our way, we will have to find a convenient hole somewhere, and the best hole for the purpose which I know of is in Edmondson County, Kentucky, so let us go there, when we reach this hole we find that it is not a very large one, but still quite high and wide enough for us to enter, but, before we go into that dark place, we will get someone to carry a light and guide us, for this underground country which we are going to explore is very extensive, very dark, and, in some places, very dangerous, here is a black man who will go with us, he has a lantern, and he says he knows every nook and corner of the place, so we engage him, get some lanterns for ourselves, and in we go, we commence to go downwards very soon after we have passed from the outer air and sunshine, but it is not long before we stand upon a level surface, where we can see nothing of the outside world, if ooh, 